All right. Hello, everyone. This is David Rose, author of Spent Shell Casing. It's available for pre-order now and will be out April 20th. Uh, very excited for this broadcast because I have uh, two very esteemed guests with me. Um, I'm going to go one at a time here. One is a gentleman that was influential in the testing of the book. He was a part of the first and second drafts and um, was an integral part in sort of the, the spirit of the work. And uh, his name is Rob. Say hello, Rob. Hey, man, what's going on? All right, cool. And secondly is a uh, reoccurring character in the book, a good buddy of mine named Derek. Say hello, Derek. Hey, good evening. All right, cool. So um, basically the intent of, of this particular broadcast is uh, these are two guys that I worked with. These are two guys that I had trained with for several years and um, wanted to speak to them a bit to get some insight into uh, their view on veteran culture post-Iraq, Afghanistan, as well as veteran literature and how it relates to spent shell casings. Real quick, guys, uh, in whatever order you want, can you please give the listening audience just sort of a, a brief synopsis of your own military background and what you're up to now? All right, Rob, would you like to go first? H before uh, B. Yeah, sure, that works. All right. Um, Essentially, I was with uh, 2nd Recon during 03 and 07, and um, I was deployed to Iraq in 04 and 05, and then was on the 2-4 Mu for 06. Got out in 07, um, went through uh, vetting with Blackwater in 07, and then started working with Blackwater from 2000, the January of 2008 all the way until 2012, and I've been in school since then. And what are you going to school for? Uh, right now, I'm finishing up a uh, biology degree, and uh, looking forward to going into some sort of science-based field. Awesome, awesome. Derek, what about you? All right, so I went and joined the Marine Corps in 2003. Uh, my desire to join was simply based on going to war. That was all I wanted to do. Uh, the rest of my peers were going off to college to drink beer and party and were uncertain of their futures. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and that was to be deployed. So uh, 2003 joined, 2004 to recon screen. Uh, I remember the guys came into the room. There was a couple, about like 100 of us. And they said, all right, raise your hands if you want to do the most dangerous missions without a guarantee of coming back alive. So that sounds like <laughs> what I want to do. So uh, <laughs> yeah. screen, passed it uh, like the rest of us did on this phone call and uh, went ahead. Went to reconnaissance school, did my training, did a workup. First deployment uh, with these guys uh, to Fallujah, came back, did my sniper school training, and went and did my second deployment, and got out in 07, and since then been in school. Uh, I've just kind of been a serial student, and currently a second-year medical student, about to be third year. Awesome, yeah. yeah. And I guess one of the reasons I wanted to kind of go into that history is that uh, from from the layperson's perspective is not only was the military background quite prestigious, but uh, also the post-military education pursuits have been uh, quite intense as well for, um, for you guys, myself included. And uh, I think that's important because some of the things we're going to talk about is 
a perspective of the military that is definitely not the worm's eye view. You know, uh, this is a perspective of an eye-to-eye focus of people who who lived it, but also um, tend to look at things through a more um, academic perspective, if you will. And uh, I think people will be a little bit interested to see that our particular group's views may be considered somewhat unorthodox to um, how things are perceived, at least to the general public, and how, you know, the the mainstream news outlets tend to uh, insist the American veteran culture sees things. Um, So that leads me into a question I have for you guys, is uh, what differences have you guys seen in how the global war on terror generation is presented in comparison to what you guys actually experienced? Uh, Rob, you want to go funny. first? Or you want me? Uh, sure. And, and while we're doing this, by all means, please go ahead and jump in. <laughs> I think it's funny or humorous and you want to spark up. But I think the humorous thing about it, and we always talk about this, is that a lot of the books that are out on the market right now are pretty much vanity pieces, as you took it. And it's always the same sort of military trope. It's this idol worship of military uh, personnel. It's, you know, oh, I served with heroes and I did it for the man next to me. And it's, it's just a lot of uh, very similar, um, you know, no shit there I was, you know, Hilo jumping from the spatial type of like cool guy high speed stories. And I think what makes your book kind of interesting is that it goes outside of the military and it goes into other areas where, uh, you know, there's a lot of joking around. There's a lot of funny side stories that go into it. And there's a lot of other alternative reasons for joining the military other than being, hey, we're going to go spread democracy and freedom and liberty, which nobody really bought. You know, I think only very dumb people joined the military, you know, thought that we were going to go over there and give democracy to, you know, the Iraqis. So it's just kind of a completely different viewpoint and perspective on why uh, a lot of people went to, and decided to go fight. Derek pretty much summed it up earlier. Um, you know, most of us joined to go be warriors. We wanted to go fight. We wanted to go, you know, be part of that culture, you know, and it wasn't so much, uh, like I said, yay, but it's for democracy. No, it really wasn't that, you know, so that wasn't the case. Yeah, and, and, and question for you, Rob. Uh, you know, I personally noticed in Iraq when we had cable access that it seemed like what was being reported on Fox and MSNBC was uh, galactically different from what was going on boots on the ground sometime. And um, first, would you agree with that? And, and do you think that that sort of main that sort of stayed the same in, as years passed, or do you think it's dwindled, or has it <laughs> gotten uh, out of hand? <laughs> I think it's actually increased and and has gotten out of hand. Um, it's very interesting because when I, I remember we were overseas, we would basically get, when you watch the news, whether it was Fox or CNN or MSNBC or whoever it was, we really only got about 5% of what really was going on. A lot of it was more pushing whatever political agenda, which was popular at the time. And it's, it's just kind of humorous that you would see this, you know, like, wait a minute, that's not exactly how things are. And, and so it just became pretty obvious that a lot of the reasons why, you know, uh, interest overseas and when it comes to war, it's more about money and less about, I would say, noble ideals and certain things like that. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to war, you're seeing a lot of troops overseas. And so it's kind of a funny, um, kind of a funny uh, dichotomy there. 
Yeah, you know, and, and um, I think I think we all I, we all agree that there's always going to be a slight disparity between what actually is happening and what's reported on the news. But what really what really got to me, and I, I think I was too young to realize it at the time, but I, I kind of it hit me, but I didn't realize its full impact until many years later. Is it kind of what you just said? Yeah, there's going to be a disparity, maybe because of operational security or just the lag in time. But the thing that I noticed bizarre about how things were reported is the the care the character the actual character and the personalities of the people were essentially pre-designated if you will they they were uh, Chris Matthews on Hardball was saying you know how the troops in Afghanistan feel and and same with types like O'Reilly and everyone else and I found it a little bizarre that they uh, sort of made a uh, a clear cut big definition of why tens of thousands of Generation Y and a few Generation Xers decided to put on the uniform. So uh, let me let me well, start to you, Derek. What... To... Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead man. Go ahead. And they did so... it to what was acceptable for the American culture. They don't want to. I think it would be very hard to sell for most American culture. They're like, oh, we're going to go over there and going to go help people, and we're going to go defend your freedoms and all this kind of stuff. Well, a lot of guys who joined, we joined to go to war. We joined to be warriors. We joined to be part of of that culture, you know, and so it's it's kind of humorous that they, they spun it like that, but at the same time, that's, you can't necessarily tell the general public at large, yeah, there's a certain portion of your population who wants to go overseas and do bad things to people. That's not necessarily a politically <laughs> correct thing to say, you know, yeah, so... It's not, it's not, it's, very, it's, uh, not very digestible, so... No, not at all. And it's very humorous when the news media puts up there, and they're like, oh, they're here to join freedom. Really? I don't recall. Let me, uh, let, 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 me pass the same, let me pass the same question on to Derek. Uh, Derek, as far as um, the differences as the war in the culture as you experienced compared to how it's been presented. Yeah, I mean, just to touch on two points to uh, make sure we're clear here. The first thing was you were saying how the media – uh, how the media coverage was when we were there and currently what it's like. And then I think what you're currently asking is, if I'm correct, um, when we were in and the people who were joining during our generation compared to people who are uh, who maybe joined a few years later or even the people joining the military now. Am I correct with that? Well, you know, that actually, that actually is sort of a side point, is that there seems to be a specific... A, a very specific demographic uh, of American men. And, and I think of just today I was listening to um, the Fight Club soundtrack and uh, the Chemical Brothers and, and some stuff like that. And I remember the late 90s era of uh, teenage men. And we were me, me and uh, Derek were uh, right around the same age. Rob's a tiny bit older. But um, I remember that, that was, there was a large portion of... Uh, let me just let me rephrase it to where there was there was an interesting motivation that came from sort of late nineties American culture um, that people were chomping at the bit to go to war, whether it was Iraq or Afghanistan. And I and I think that as the war progressed, there was definitely some different motivations later on. Someone who joined in two thousand and two uh, after the towers and, and and not really knowing what was going to happen with both occupations. Yeah, I would say they did join different than someone uh, for different incentives maybe than someone who joined in 2010. But what I'm what I'm really getting at is uh, more more of a global question, if you will, as far as since you got out and you have your memories as far as how we all work together and and uh, the conversations we had compared to let's just say books and media 
how it's presented as uh, why we did those things. Yeah. So my idea uh, when I think about it is I think the best way to relate to it is almost like a sports team winning the Super Bowl. When we joined, uh, we joined a time when I feel like there still wasn't much coverage. It was, there still was a lot of uh, what you mentioned, uncertainty. And what we did was we jumped right in. I mean, we plunged right into it knowing that many things were uncertain. We didn't know where we, where we exactly where we were going to uh, deploy, what years, what was going to go on. And I feel like that generation uh, is extremely different. I mean, world apart, polar opposites compared to the people who even entered a few years after us. And like I say, it's almost like a sports team winning the Super Bowl because I feel like the people who put on the uniform and laced up their boots years after us are like the individuals who go out and purchase uh, the jersey of the winning Super Bowl team, even though they were never a fan. And I think there's a term for it, like binging and other success. And mm-hmm. I feel as though that we went, we made the sacrifices, we did these things, we came home. Then these people went, and they went ahead and rode the coattails of the people who went before them and made those sacrifices. And yeah, they may have deployed and they may have done these things, but it wasn't years afterwards until I felt like I started seeing the billboards for Wounded Warrior Projects and hearing the, uh, I mean, the, the floods of country music songs coming in about why we're oh, over there. Jesus for, for, for mom, <laughs> for mom and dad, apple pie, and, and God bless yeah, Texas. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. You could go on. You could go on for days with those things. Um, so why do you guys? Like, why do you guys think that happened? Why do you guys think there was this sort of phenomenon where? Because I, I, I swear to God, it all happened in a week. You know, uh, let me let me just let me just uh, wind the clock back a little bit. That around 2003, 2004, books like Jarhead and Generation Kill came out, and 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 they, uh, I think they were on the right track. They were giving a very honest appraisal of American men who were born in the light of MTV and in the tech boom. And um, and then all of a sudden, maybe 2006, maybe there seemed to be this avalanche of of uh, uh, ghost-written books that were right out of uh, you know a keep America traditional how-to manual. And I was just curious what you guys' take is as far as maybe what caused that phenomenon. Well, I think it was easy. I think yeah, I think it was easy for these people to do it. it it's almost in the sense of. Uh, I feel as though that they took on a fiduciary role. Um, I mean, once again, you compare it to a sports team or a doctor, is that if you go to a physician and if they tell you to go ahead and do something for your health, for the most part, you're going to do it. Not simply because they're your friend, but because you respect them and that they have a social hierarchy above you. So if somebody, say a special operations individual or anybody who had deployed, and you're somebody who never has, and you look up to this person almost like a hero. Everything that they, that they do or, or that, that's spoken of about them, it's secret. There's some fantasy, some mystique about them. So you hold them in a higher regard than you. So I feel like they use that platform almost as their advantage. And by using that platform, saying, I'm above you, I'm going to go ahead and take this fiduciary role. Now let me go ahead and tell you how to raise your dog like a Navy SEAL. Let me go ahead and tell you how to get fit and do log runs if you're an accountant from nine to five, and then make money off books like that. I feel like they could have interjected any idea, but it was because people were looking up to these people as heroes. So they were going to yeah. buy the books no matter what, whether it was a piece 
by T.S. Eliot or it was a piece of trash written on scratch paper by somebody who never finished high school. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Rob, what you got? I mean, it's really the same thing. I mean, I really think that a lot of these things were done. You look at, you know, we're some Navy SEALs and their good deeds and all that. So I'm not trying to, like, blanket state on Navy SEALs. It's just because there's a proliferation of books about them that are out there right now. <laughs> yeah, um, it's one of those things, but I mean, it's, it's, you, can't, you can't shake a stick without looking and seeing, like, you know, how you can do the Navy SEAL program in seven minutes at your cubicle. It's like, Jesus fucking Christ, dude. Really? <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things where by attaching the term Navy SEAL to something that people automatically, it automatically gives credibility to it. And Derek kind of hit, it on it, hit on this as well. It's the same thing when it comes to doctors or anybody else who is in a position of authority. You look at, like, say, Colgate commercials, and they're like, oh, nine out of ten doctors like, you know, Colgate. Well, how many of those doctors were on the pay of Colgate? You know, so mm-hmm. it's people will, uh, the average dumb American will just flash on to anything who seems like an authority figure. Anything that gives them, anything that gives them basically the license of, I don't really want to think about this problem, but I need it, I need the problem solved, and if somebody else can do the thinking for me, then I will follow their path. And here's a question. Of, Look, here's, here, here's a question I, I really want to ask. Here's a question I'm dying to ask both of you guys. Why do you guys think it was the Navy SEALs that became the sort of uh, last action heroes for, for our modern culture? Because they definitely are. And I agree. You know, fans, I have, we have friends that are SEALs. Uh, this, is, this is not a uh, dig on the Navy SEALs. But, you know, if you look on Fox News, if you look on a- Amazon, the, the Navy SEALs have become the sort of modern warrior archetype. And you're right. It's, it's bled into the free market as far as energy bars and how to uh, do breathing techniques to make the workplace more tranquil. Why do you guys think it was them? They have movies. <laughs> have you not seen the Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen? That shit is amazing. Uh, yeah, but you know what? That's I, mean, funny. I mean, come on. It's you know, a Hartford Hollywood culture. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that because think about, like, say, okay, The Rock. And people know that Recon was mentioned in the rock, but they're all mentioned as the bad guys. And not that we don't like that. I think that's awesome. I'm glad they do that. But it's never mentioned as something good. And it's just it's just a popular culture thing. Plus, I think you see a lot of the pictures of these guys that are coming out of the water and they're in a Draeger and they've got, you know, all kinds of high speedery that's attached to them and guns and everything and silencers. And so people just they they're just in the market, you know. Um it's it's just it, they were a part of a pop, uh, part of pop culture and they're in movies and it's something that's easily uh, identifiable within American culture. I think the same thing could be said. God, show my age a little bit in the '80s about anybody who's involved with special forces and that was on the coattails of what special forces did in Vietnam and things like that. They had like their moment or like, oh, if you mention special forces, you're clearly you know the most high speed motherfucker that's out there. Whereas I think now during, you know, the early 2000s, it's now the Navy SEALs. So it's just, yeah. um, it's, it's their time, I guess. <laughs> let me, let me, all right, let me pull the mic to Derek. Derek, what do you got? Uh, I mean, it's a tough one. I mean, the theory behind it, I think that it's possible that maybe it was a group of individuals and that it could have been that they were the ones who were most susceptible to the priming. I think that it's almost like a cycle and that maybe the media first initiated it or it could have been individuals within that group. 
And maybe what happened mm-hmm. is that maybe the media tried with different groups at first. Maybe they tried with the Army Special Forces or Air Force Special Operations, and that they didn't accept the priming. And then maybe mm-hmm. then once they hit the seals, it set off the daisy chain. And then it was this cycle that just kept going and going. And then once you hit that domino effect, you can't go back. And I feel like once that perpetuates in the community, it's nothing against an individual. I mean, if all of your friends are sitting there writing books and they say, hey, I got this guy who's a ghostwriter, you're guaranteed a $10,000, $20,000 check, all you got to do is sit down with them for three days and talk about fitness or talk about endorse an energy product and mm-hmm. it's a paycheck. I think a lot yeah. of these guys would do it. And I mean, nothing against them. I might even yeah, ask somebody came to me and said, hey, we'll help pay your tuition if you endorse an energy bar simply because of what you did. And yeah, you I know, I'm fine. I have no problem with that. I actually, I've written some articles about that, is that I always find it funny, because there's always a backlash when, when, when people do this. And I've, I've actually been in, in pretty uh, fervent support of, of uh, military veterans getting into the free market, because you know, it, it, we, all know, we all know the bumper sticker slogan, that you're, you defend America, you defend democracy, and you defend its framework. Well, one of the larger components is the freest, uh, free enterprise. So I think it's great that, that guys... Uh, find a way to pursue free enterprise once they go. They risk their lives, and so I, I applaud that. I think another thing is is that um, they were the ones that got the tag connected to bin Laden. I think that's what really, really exploded the seals into the mainstream community. And Absolutely. that kind of that kind of gets me onto this. Uh, I'm going to kind of segue a little bit to basically our last portion here is that so the public support for the war in uh, Iraq dwindled tremendously and fast. It was always a little higher for Afghanistan. But both, both, both uh, campaigns suffered um, less and less support as the years rolled on. We can talk all day about you know, American impatience and, and instant gratification culture, but you know, to me it seemed that when public support got so low for the war efforts that we didn't find WMDs, uh, or stability operations to embed democracy into an ancient culture is not working very well. It seemed the sort of post facto reaction was, hey, we're not going to talk about the war thing so much, but look at these shiny American boy heroes that have emerged from it. I mean, uh, would you guys agree that, that kind of seems to now be the center stage? It's not even the war anymore. It's, the guy, it's, it's, it's these larger-than-life figures that uh, are now you know, contributors to major news outlets and stuff. Um, well, and with go ahead, go ahead. No, send it. Go ahead. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is, is that, and this to get more into the literary aspect of my book, is that I noticed over and over and over again, as we talked about in the opening of the discussion, there was this sort of algorithm that uh, military veterans and their ghostwriters were following. And, you know, in ones and twos, it was okay, but it ended up being the norm, which I found uh, extremely disingenuous, because um, to me it seemed that, in a nutshell, okay, well, you know, American men and women from all walks of life, every socioeconomic status, every religious or lack of religious belief can populate the war fronts, all volunteer for a decade. But when it's all said and done, we're only going to select this extreme caricature 
and we're going to polish up what we need to polish, and we're going to redact what doesn't fit our social and political agenda. And these are the boys. These are these are the icons of the war effort, which to me, and I noted that both of you, is, is yeah, it represents a small fa- fraction of the people who we worked with, but it certainly doesn't represent the whole. Um, so here's my question for you guys, and it's the final one. Thank you guys for coming on. What to you guys would be a uh, work of, of literature or maybe a cinematic work that would fulfill the missing gaps in the narrative? What aspects of military life, military culture, psychology, et cetera, are missing in the current conversation? Uh, in the current conversation, well, first I would ban all country singers from singing about the military. That would have been <laughs> seen. <laughs> uh, right, right. No, it's, it's kind of funny, but um, the, the thing is, it, it reminds me of, well, I mean, there's, there's two quotes, and I remember cause you were talking about media and the way that the war, uh, the support for the war had finally been exhausted after so many years, and it was uh, General Giap, uh for the North Vietnamese, and I think it was in his autobiography, he had mentioned something along the lines where, I don't know why you Americans stopped bombing Hanoi. You had us, and the same one along with Tet, is that on, on different times, we were willing to surrender. But it was your own American media that was causing more disruption yes. in America than Absolutely. on the battlefield in Vietnam. So it was your own American media that made you lose the war. Now, I think, you know, fast, fast forward so many years into the GWAT era, I believe that the American media realizes that they had done that. So now they're going to go to the polar opposite. And... How do we not disrupt it? How do we not cause a scene back home? Well, we praise these men and women. We praise these men and women as heroes. And the funny part about it is most of these individuals who come back heroes and we put them on television or we we have fundraisers for them because they can't get jobs. The reality is, to me, and this may be a harsh reality, and people may say that, you know, this is heartless, these people, if it wasn't for the military, they didn't have anything to begin with. If somebody's yeah. working at Walmart and they don't have a college education and you pull them out of a trailer park in Alabama and you put a uniform on them and they serve four years and then they get out of the military and that person still doesn't have an education, he doesn't have a nine-to-five, is he a hero? Does he deserve anything more than the other individuals who, say, went to college, who was a poor young black youth from the ghetto, and worked the nine to five to pay for his own tuition. Is that mm-hmm. individual not a hero? So why does the media tend to focus on that so much? And yeah, I agree. It seems like the pendulum's yeah. swung the other way. You know, well, let, let, let's it's just let's just There's no media. happy media. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rob, what you got, man? Honestly, man, I would really attribute everything to if you follow the money, it'll kind of lead you to the truth of what's going on in the U.S. And I simply support. So I just I think that America is a business. You mentioned something earlier talking about, um, you know, oh, well, they didn't find the, you know, WMDs and they went to Iraq. But, I mean, that was kind of an interesting, if you think about it, that was really kind of an interesting reason, reason that was pushed for going into Iraq. Like, we're going to find weapons of mass destruction. But if you kind of define weapons of mass destruction, it really... It's an amorphous term. It can fit almost anything. My car going through your dining room during dinner is a weapon of mass destruction. So it just kind of depends. I think people automatically assume to be like, oh, it's going to be nuclear weapons. 
Well, we knew that Iraq had, you know, gas, you know, bombs and sand bombs and stuff like that, and they used it. And we knew that they got these weapons from various different people, and we knew they had scuds. And so I think if, let's just take the scuds, we knew they had scuds. If you threw a scud into the middle of an elementary classroom and it kills 30 kids, that's obviously a weapon of mass destruction. Now, did we not find those weapons? We did, but it wasn't something that was perpetuated a lot in the media. I think it's mm-hmm. also kind of humorous that right around this time, who was our enemy? We wanted to say that it was Iraq, but as soon as Saddam fell, all of a sudden it became a war on terror. I mean, what was, what was terror? You know, Bush would say, what was terror? Well, it's really this amorphous term that you can apply to anything. You can yeah, apply to an anybody who might cause... Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny because right during the early 2000s and right through the middle of 2005, 2004, 2006, the U.S. has really pushed forward with a war economy. We were able to basically label anything that we could as terrorism. We can go in and we can apply military force towards that area, and then we can set up shop when it comes to other industries, whether it's American industries or you know, Chinese, French, or whoever wants to go in there. And it's also kind of a funny, uh, not funny, it's more of an ironic kind of thing, where as soon as you apply rules of engagement to a battlefield, that brings into question your whole goals as far as warfare. What you're basically saying is, I'm going to willfully, willfully limit my own forces so that I cannot win the war, I cannot win the war as decisively and as quickly as I want to. And so that kind of, from my perspective, really kind of feeds into the narrative that we went to war because it was feasible, it was economically viable for us to do it, and we did it because we knew we would basically have an economy for a very long time without ever actually having to win said war on terror. I mean, how much is better? Have we really gained any sort of control in Iraq? Have we gained any sort of control in Afghanistan? Have we really gained any kind of control when it comes to terrorist activities? From abroad, you know, we really have, right. uh, but what we have done the microscopic uh, attention span of the American public is it seems like it, whatever whatever the ultimate reality is, is it seems that um, it, there needs to be some sort of victory, and if it's not clear that, that I think a, a moral and a cultural victory, if you will, seems to uh, be a, a pretty good silver medal, and, and that's what I've seen a lot with how um, the, the uh, larger-than-life figures of the GWAT have been expressed. Um, and so... Hold on, This conversation uh, sounds way too much like a, uh, a Pentagon roundtable meeting than uh, a broadcast <laughs> about a book. So, so I want to go ahead and I want to pull it all back to an artistic narrative okay <laughs> all right so here, here here is the thing and i want to uh it just dawned on me uh to the folks listening derek um lived in la for a number of years and uh was friends with some of the people who were featured in not only the reality but also the movie generation kill generation kill was an amazing book i mentioned it about 30 minutes ago uh, about the uh real state of the um, boys who were occupying the uniforms during the Iraq and Afghan invasion, and it was extraordinarily irreverent. He was talking about internet porn and and and, and uh, sociopathic tendencies, etc. Well, it makes its way to HBO, and it's a dud. Derek 
had the pleasure to talk to, I believe, who was that? The president of HBO? Yeah, a few of the heads. Uh, it was during Comic Con. Yeah. And uh, can you, yeah, can you talk a little bit about about what they said in the conversation you had? Because I, I find it not only riveting, but it really uh, captures um, a lot about the motivation uh, of my work. And, and I'd really appreciate it if you could sort of explain a little. So I was down in Comic Con with uh, one of my friends who happened to be, he starred in Generation Kill and was also uh, the military advisor. So I was at this after party, and I was there with a, with a few of the people who worked on Generation Kill and Station Heads. And I asked them, I said, you know, how did Generation Kill go for you? Did it uh, garner the success that you had projected? And they said no. And I said, that's surprising. I loved it. My friends loved it. What and then I asked him, I said, you guys have been in the movie business, television business. What was it that didn't make it as successful? And they told me, they said, it was too real. And I asked him, can you explain that? And, well, they said it was, it was too real for the American people. Unfortunately, the American people are not ready for something like that. They want quick bursts of action to, uh, to be able to hold on to their attention span. American people these days are not the same type of people who are watching Platoon or Band of Brothers. I mean, you have people going and grabbing their popcorn and their triple XL Pepsi and <laughs> watching explosion after explosion and saying it's the best war movie they've ever seen, and therefore we should continue to stay in Iraq and fight. And that was, it was kind of eye-opening to me. And I realized there, I was like, it's amazing that it, it was true. And it started hitting me, and I started looking at it. And I said, it's true. It's like these people want tangible items. I think kind of what Rob said, too. And I think it even ties back into the war. It's just because we didn't find a tangible weapon of mass destruction, it means that the war was unjustified. But I feel like if the American public was a little bit smarter and thought more in depth, they would realize that the war was justified simply because the weapon of mass destruction isn't a tangible nuclear weapon. It's the idealism. The weapon of mass destruction is a thought that's in their mind. That's what's bringing the terrorism. Anybody could find a bomb. But you know, what is that going to solve? It's, it's that. And I think that's where the people tying back to what we mentioned about the movie and the book is that when you tried to hit in your book, you're not talking about action after action and battle after battle. Kind of like what Nietzsche said. Yeah, war breeds good things, and it also breeds good prose. I believe that that's what your book hits. It's good prose because it's not focused on military action, but it's focused on the psychology. It's focused on character development. It's focused on all the things that HBO said wouldn't be a success because people aren't ready for it. So I think that you coming out with this book at this time is not only courageous on your end, because I'm assuming that many people told you not to do it, but it says a lot about your character of that you're willing to push it and say, you know what, I'm not here to cash in on a check and talk about IEDs and sniper missions and HVT raids. I'm here to tell the story how it is. And for the people who do enjoy it, I'm glad to bring you and provide you with this story. And for the others, well, Walmart's having a sale. So, check in line. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you very, very much. All right, guys, guys, we've, we've, uh, I think we've exhausted our time link here. I want to thank you guys again very much for uh, contributing to this broadcast. And um, just a closing note, again, the book is Spent Shell Casings, 25 and 5 Stories. It will be available 
for publication on April 20th, where all books are sold, as far as ebooks, that is. We do have a paperback option on Amazon. I'm hoping to uh, uh, sort of do a punk rock attack to the industry and uh, maybe topple over a few barriers and get into that brick and mortar real estate, but we shall see. All right. Have a good evening. Thank you very Excellent. much. Thank you very much. All right. Two, three out.